it's good to be here with you. You know, I'm um, honored to be here with you. Retreats are the Lord's idea. Caesarea Philippi, he took the 12 aside for the retreat and the greatest revelation of Jesus came forth as a result of that retreat. So retreats are by design where the Lord wants to draw near and tell you things about himself and to tell you things about you. Because it's not only that Peter says you're the Christ. Jesus looks at him and says, well, you're the rock. And on this on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it's it's a time to hear about him and it's a time to hear about you. And so that's what retreats are for. It's not a time to do something. It's a time to hear something. So Jesus takes them out of three years of really hard work. You know, so much hard work that it's going to be such hard work. There is no such thing as rest because even when you go to a house to sleep, people rip off the roof and lower paralytics down, you know, so there is no rest that he goes. And, and so, but they find themselves in need of retreat because they're going to go through a season of shaking. And uh, in the next six months, all their weaknesses are going to be revealed. Uh, they're going to find themselves at odds with one another and ineffective in some ways when they could cast out demons before. Now they can't. The epileptic boy, the demon won't leave. Their lack of prayer, their lack of unity, their lack of understanding the word, their lack of understanding God's purpose, their own deficiencies are emerging. And then Jesus goes off and dies. And so all of that combines together. And so Jesus knows the next six months is going to be difficult. So he takes them off on a retreat. And he wants to, he wants them to discover who he is. Now, this is interesting because I'm giving you a key before you start the retreat. This isn't about God speaking to you loud enough. This is about him getting you to ask him questions so he can affirm what he puts in your heart. You know, he begins the retreat with, who do you say that I am? Who do you? And they have to answer. And when Peter answers, that's when he draws near. So the Lord's going to, the Lord wants you to talk to him. That's the point. He wants your partnership in the revealing of himself. Do you remember he comes up on the road to Emmaus? He comes up behind the two. Cleopas, I think, is what Cleopas and another disciple and he asked them, why are you so sad? This is after, you know, he's been killed. And uh, the women are now saying he's resurre- resurrected from the dead. And this body can't be found. And they're walking back disappointed. They don't know what's happened, but they're disillusioned. And he comes up and says, why are you so sad? And, and you, you might say, well, it, his name's Cleopas. <laughs> You'd be sad too. I'm, I'm just kidding. Is there any Cleopas in here? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Cleo. <laughs> so, but he says to them, he walks behind him and for, for hours he unfolds the word. But what's interesting, it says when they got to their place, Jesus kept walking. And it says they constrained him. Which means, uh-uh, you ain't going anywhere. You're coming home with us for the night now. My point is, is that Jesus will 
keep walking and let you choose whether you want to constrain him. You know why? Because you're not the only one who wants to be wanted. He wants to be wanted. He wants to be desired. That's why he says, blessed are, blessed are you who aren't offended at what I'm like. Blessed are the ones who enjoy me, who constrain me, who refuse to live life without me in spite of where they're at. Just He's looking. He will always respond. That's why he always calls and makes you turn around. Have you ever noticed that? Moses, he goes, Moses. From the burning bush, Moses. And it says Moses turned around. Why doesn't God just show up right in front of you? He wants voluntary love. He, he wants you to turn. In the book of Revelation, it sound like the voice of a trumpet. And what? And I turn to see the voice. Why does he always show up behind us? And then he will wait to see if we turn. And so uh, he's always looking for partnership. He's not, he is sovereign, but he's not stale, cold sovereign. He wants your partnership. And, and uh, retreats are good times to turn around and see the voice. To turn around, to constrain him. To say, you know what? I don't know how... I personally don't know how good your track record is. I don't care. Just turn around to see the voice. Just constrain him this weekend. Because these are times where God likes to draw near to tell you about himself. And he wants you to discover it. And he'll even tell you about you. So I want to pray that for you. So I want to set this retreat up right tonight. That you would... Um, well, I'll say it the way the Apostle Paul prayed it at the end of 2 Corinthians. He said that you would know the love of the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the fellowship or nearness of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Apostle Paul wanted for you, to know the love of the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the nearness of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that this retreat, you would begin it well, not evaluating your track record of what, how you got here or why you're here or all that or if you performed, or, but you would just stop and go and turn to see the voice and constrain him and let your hunger lead you for the next, what is it, Friday? Till Sunday at noon. So let's let's pray and ask the Lord. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this place that you've sovereignly given us for the weekend. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that those who you bless, no man can curse. And I thank you that you've given us this place. And so I ask you to set apart this room and every uh, room in this place where we're staying as holy unto the Lord. And that you would fill it with your angels we disassociate ourselves from any sin committed on this premises. And Lord, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit, that you would consecrate this place for your good pleasure. And Father, I ask that your love and the grace of the Lord Jesus and the nearness of the Holy Spirit would be with us. 
And so, Father, I ask for great peace and sweetness and goodness and loving kindness. Lord, your word says we'll meditate on your loving kindness through the watches of the night. And so, Lord, I ask for your loving kindness, the love of the Father to be made known to us in the name of Jesus. And I ask that you would send Holy Spirit. He is the teacher. We are the students. We want to learn from him. So, Father, we love you. We bless you. We ask you to send Holy Spirit to do what you love to do. Unveil yourself to us. Speak to us about you and speak to us about us, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles. Now, you have to, you brought your Bibles, right? Or an iPhone or an iPad or something. Go ahead and, and take it out and turn with me to Psalm 139. We're going to read the whole thing. So go ahead and open it up. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Now I'm going to start that over again. I just want you to put your eyes right on that text. Just follow along with me. This will be the best part of the whole evening are, are these next 24 verses. Way better than any words of a man are these 24 verses. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. For your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book, they all were written the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. 
How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to look at Psalm 139 tonight as we start. And I want to walk us through this psalm. Uh, you know, uh, this psalm has been called by theologians as the crown of all psalms. It's the crown of all psalms. In fact, I hope there's lots of your favorite phrases from this psalm. Like you've searched me and known me or I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Or search me and know my heart. Lead me in the way everlasting. There's all these phrases, you know, that that are taken from this psalm that become people's meditation. But actually, this psalm is a psalm that leads, or I'll say it this way, leads to or ends with the cry for fullness. For David, this psalm, the content of this psalm is going to lead to the cry of fullness. And I'll just be honest with you. The thing that impressed me as associate director of IHOP KC, I get to go all over the world and I've been all over the world. And I remember the first time I saw you in that, uh, what was the name? Samuel and I were there aggregation you had, which one? And I remember Samuel and I were there and I remember you, uh, there, you were lined up outside the building waiting for the doors to open. I thought, oh my gosh, where in the, where in the world do 20 year olds line up and wait for anything? <laughs> I mean, there was this hunger on you. There was this thirsting, like you were hungry for worship, hungry for the word, but it was the reach for fullness. That's my point. It was the reach for, I want all of God. I want all of Him. And I remember saying to uh, my son and to all those I would meet, you have to go to New Philly. You have to see them. They're hungry for God. You know, uh, and especially in a nation in which is becoming powerful. Korea is powerful. And the church in Korea is becoming powerful. Soon it'll take over the missions thrust of the entire world. It would be the largest mission force ever sent out from a nation will come forth from Korea, has the largest churches. You know, I don't have to tell you about the demographics, but on the world stage, Korea is becoming powerful. But do they wait in line and just hunger for fullness? They're powerful, but are they hungry? You know, in that the church of Ephesus, he goes, you're powerful, but you don't want me anymore. You don't long for me anymore. You, you don't, Yearn for me. You don't reach for me. That first love. You know, I, my son just bought his uh, engagement ring, my middle son, for, for the gal he's, he's met. And um, it's so funny. Uh, I'm, 
He's going to have premarital counseling, but as a, as a pastor, I'm already premarital, premarital counseling all the time. <laughs> and you know what? You know what is so funny about first love? We sang about it tonight. You don't recognize all the problems. First love is not realism. <laughs> first love is when you're jacked up and you come to know Jesus and it's okay. <laughs> you know, you just, ah, it's going to be awesome. The church is awesome. Everything's awesome. And, and so I'm asking him questions and I'm talking about how they both do recreation, how they both rest, how they work through conflicts and everything's awesome, dad. <laughs> everything's awesome. We're just perfectly compatible. And I'm, I'm, I'm watching. I'm going, uh, you know what? They, they don't need a dose of realism right now. They're just in love. Just like, leave them alone. You know, they're going to have a healthy dose of realism like on day two of the honeymoon. You know, <laughs> you know just leave them alone. <laughs> you know, and so, so my point is, is that uh, th- this, what was my point, people? Where was I going with this thing? Oh, you're powerful. <laughs> Korea, you're powerful, but are you desirous of him? Do you long for him? You know, and, and so my my son and his future wife will become more knowledgeable and insight. More knowledge gives you power and more insight gives you power and you'll become more efficient and they'll learn how to work through issues. But will they become so powerful and knowledgeable that they just forget to want each other, you know? And so Ephesus, he goes, I, I want you to want me again. I want you to want me. I want you to, I want you to want me. And so I, I, um, but the good news about this Psalm and the reason why the Lord led me to it is that David, it ends with this abandoned cry. I want you. And remove everything on the outside and inside that keeps me from you. But it's interesting what brings him to that place of abandonment. It's not going to be his effort. It's not going to be his his religious exertion. It's going to be through the understanding of this intimate acquaintance that God has with him. It's going to be through... God seeing him and it's going to undo him. You know, everybody wants to be seen, right? You want to be seen. You want to know. I, I know when my boys play sports, they'll look over and see if I'm watching. And if somebody's taking my time and not letting me watch the game, it myths them. Think about that. They get miffed that somebody's distracting me from what? Seeing them. They want to be seen. They want to know dad's looking. And the same is true. We, we want to be seen. We want to be genuinely seen and genuinely known and genuinely loved. And David's going to talk to us about a truth here. Now, I remember the first time I preached on Psalm 139. I was talking to our, it was a songwriting camp, bless you. It was a songwriting camp of, 
IHOP worship leaders. And so we'll go up to our retreat center and they'll do a songwriting camp for three, four, five days. And they'll, they'll make little teams and each write a song and come up together. And I remember they asked me to kick off the songwriting camp with a message about a 15, 20 minute message. And so I brought this Psalm and I could tell when I went to go to a Psalm, they, they, I could just hear them kind of growl at me a little bit like, Alan, don't touch our Psalms. You know, you could preach on Paul, but don't you parse our Psalms. Don't you theologically, you know, break down our Psalms. And we, we Psalms aren't made to be taught and parsed and versed and, you know, put into categories and notes with, you know, Roman numerals and sub points and sub sub points and sub 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 points. Stop it. No, songs, they're songs. They're meant to be sung or at least whispered slowly and meditated on. They're not meant to be conquered, you know, and, you know, ruled over through some teacher. And I could just hear him growling like, you can have Paul in the Gospels, but leave our Psalms alone. And and in one sense, they're right. The songs are meant to be sung. They're meant to be whispered. They're the the language of love. In fact, songs, that's what the nature of songs. They trick you through melodies and poetry to get you to say things you would never pray. <laughs> I mean, a good melody, and you'll just sing all kinds of things like, Though he slay me, yet I'll praise him. You, 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 can you imagine? God, kill me. <laughs> I'll still praise you while you're killing me. I mean, you would never pray that, but you sing it. And the melody touches your heart, and it opens you, opens you up in a way that's quite unexpected or like, I surrender all. Really? I surrender all. All to thee, my. Come on, people. Do y'all even know him? (laughs) And so you sing things. And the Lord draws your heart in through the language. In fact, that's what David does in the Psalms. And that's why we love him as he opens his heart. And becomes vulnerable for us to show us this great drama with God. Of both victory and struggle. And sometimes in the same passage, he'll start with struggle and then victory and struggle again. Or start with victory, then struggle, then victory. He just, he opens his heart and brings you into his own dialogue with God and lets you overhear him with God. And that's why you love him for it. In fact, he's the... Worship leader for the whole world, David is. There's no one like David. He still leads us in worship. And I could prove it. Here's why. Let me ask you, where do you go in the mornings when you open your Bible? I mean, if you're like most people, you open your Bible and you go, oh my gosh. Uh, Devotions are overwhelming. Not because there's not enough to study. But because there's too much. Where do I start? Where do I begin? I mean, it's really important. 
I probably should should start with, you know, like the Torah, because those are the first things that you probably should know the first things in order to know the middle things and the last things. But then again, the Gospels are the words in red and Jesus said them. So they got to be the most powerful words. I probably ought to know the Gospels, but the Gospels quote Deuteronomy and Leviticus more than any other thing. So I probably ought to know the Torah. But again, the Torah puts a platform on top of it, but it all means nothing if I don't understand the Roman road and the gospel. So probably Paul's interpretation of both the gospels and the Old Testament before it is probably where I ought to start. But the book of Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book. And if we are living in end times, which we could be, at least we're closer, I probably ought to know what's coming. Right? And then, and then you go, ah! And you just open to a song. Forget it. How many of you open to a psalm first? And you would have good, uh, uh, how many? Like three of you? You open to a psalm and the reason why, like the saints throughout all the ages, is because it's the language of worship and it's the language of the heart. And it gets you in the right disposition to read everything else, right? And so David opens his heart to us and we hear him talk to God and we make his language our language because it is. He articulates how we feel and he makes it safe to say things you wouldn't say in your religious, you know, you know, performance before God in prayer. He just gets it out there. You know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I mean, that came from David, Psalm 22. Jesus is going to quote David's vulnerability. Picture that. And so David opens his heart and then. David, what's interesting about David and about the Psalms in general is long before you understand what you're saying, they impact you at a deep level. And so David's going to bring us in. And so what you're going to find out in this Psalm is this beautiful symmetry. David's going to open four rooms, six verses apiece. And in these four rooms, what's fun about David is is he brings up, it's kind of like the house of prayer, if you're familiar with that, where we do antiphonal singing. We isolate a phrase. You know, a singer sings a phrase and the prayer leader goes, oh, I like that phrase, and isolates it. Then they sing around that phrase. And then a new phrase emerges, and they isolate it, and they sing around that phrase. And then a new phrase emerges, and then they sing around that phrase. David does the same thing. He, he introduces a subject. He opens a door into a room. And for six verses, he'll explore that room till a new idea emerges. He'll open another door. And you're going to go through four doors in this psalm that Davis ta- David takes us on a journey. And so it's a, it's a beautiful psalm. It's absolutely stunning. And it has more than just good phrases. It takes us in the whole rooms of revelation that's leading us to this cry for wholehearted love. But you've got to get those first three rooms of revelation to produce that last room cry for wholehearted love. And so that's what we're interested in. I want to look at it. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? Okay, let's jump in a little bit. Here's here's what I want to say to us as we we begin this. And I'm going to go line upon line through it. As we begin this, David is going to invite us into a highly personal pilgrimage into God's intimate knowledge of us. He, he, he's going to speak personally. He's going to catch us up into this 
drama of God knowing us. In fact, he's going to, I'll say it this way. This psalm is, I probably shouldn't say, I'm going I'm to say it, you, you wrestle through the implications of this. This psalm is a refuge to the weary soul and provides drink for all those who are wearied by a, a world that truly refuses to see and know one another. It's a refuge. David's reflection is a lifeline to those weary of the overpromise but underdeliver nature of our relationships. How many of you have preached small groups till you're blue in the face and then you get in one and go, what the world? I was a cell church pastor. I multiplied cell churches. That's all I did for years and years and years until I realized I don't really like going to my cell group. It's an over-promise, under-deliver deal of human relationships. But we build them all up and then we get there and go, The rejected, the insecure, the emotionally tired, and the religiously weary are beckoned in this psalm to come sit and hear the gentle words of a loving father. You know, when I read this psalm, it's like I can hear Jesus in the background saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I can hear him beckoning, come to me. The tired, the insecure, the rejected, the, the disillusioned, the weary, come, come to me. I'll give you rest. That's what I hear when I read this psalm. And so I want to begin with the very first phrase, and I want you to think about it with me a little bit. Are, are you with me? Okay, talk to me, people. Are you with me? Okay. All right. So David is going to begin... His, this psalm by touching one of our fundamental longings. It's where to be genuinely known and to be genuinely loved. And so look at it here with us because, because the reason why this is important, he says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. It, 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 here, here's why that's important is, is I don't know about you, but one of the most painful things is to be in a group of people and feel alone. I remember when I was in Japan, I was in Tokyo during rush hour. In fact, I'd got right on into the subway right before rush hour. Anybody been in Tokyo at rush hour? When the subway fills up, it's like 400 million people <laughs> descend upon one train station. No, I mean, it's, it's, I am so glad I was six foot three because I could see over just the whole sea of people. If I would have been like my wife's height, I'd have been lost for sure. I'd have never got out alive. But as I came in, but what I had that, the wildest, most wild feeling is, I'm surrounded by people, but I am completely alone. Have you ever had that? Now, the painful part of that feeling is when it's your coworkers, your friendship group your church or your spouse. When the human heart 
feels unseen and unknown and unloved. And it actually points to eternity because you were not made to feel that way. You were made to be seen, to be known, to be loved. And David's going to talk to us at the very beginning. He's going to address one of your fundamental longings. Are you seen? Are you known? Are you loved? And he's going to speak right to the heart at the very first. And he goes, oh, Lord, you've searched me. And known me. Now, this is a really interesting phrase. Because here's why I think about this theologically with me. How can the God who knows everything search anything? If you know everything, how can you search anything? There's no Google doesn't Google itself. It knows everything. You search it. You type into Google. It doesn't type into you. <laughs> it doesn't type in. You search it. It has all the information. You type it in and it tells you. But in this, it says the one who knows everything searches. Beloved, this has amazing implications about God's nature and about your relationship to him, whether you know it or not. That God not only knows you, that, that you know God knows you like he knows uh, 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 a creator knows its creation. He wrote the manual on you. He knows you full well. He's the maker. He knows you. And he knows all things. So you know he knows you what the new information is. He searches you. Though he knows you. What does that mean? Think about that with me for a minute. What in the world does searching mean when you know it already? Which is a wonderful implication here that God not only has made us and knows us, he made us in such a way that he enjoys searching out the implications of who he made. It's not that he just made the garden and put Adam and Eve in it. He made the garden, put Adam and Eve in it and then said, now make it lovely and then watched. See, God not only makes you, he not only knows you, he searches and enjoys the unfolding of who you are before him. Beloved, I know of my children. I'll give you an example. I know what's in them seed form. Now, it doesn't come out all the time. In fact, other stuff comes out I wish didn't. But I can see in seed form who they are. And one of the greatest joys as a dad is to watch it unfold, to watch it come forth. I remember my youngest son, my oldest son's played uh, sports, but my youngest son never wanted to play. But he was the fastest. He was the most coordinated. He had the most, he had wit and creativity. And, and yet I put him in soccer when he was a little kid. You ever watch little kids play soccer? They just kind of move in the packs, you know, around. But he didn't even move in the packs. He was so thrilled about the way his cleats and his uniform looked on him. (laughs) He didn't even run towards the ball. He ran around the edge of the field and just kicked dirt up with his cleats. See how high he could throw it into the air. I'm watching. I'm like, the ball. He's like. Looking at it. And it's like he never. I, I don't even know if he kicked the ball the whole the whole time. 
But I knew it was in him. I knew what he had. And I'll never forget when he got to like ninth and 10th grade. And he was so fast. He was a striker. He had such touch on the ball. He was so fast. He could dribble so well. But he hadn't gone through puberty yet. So he was this scrawny little kid. And so juniors and seniors who were gone through puberty and had their muscle mass would just knock him off the ball. So he's finessing and trying to get around him and they just boom, knock him down. Cause in high school, nobody calls fouls anyway or does, does anything. So they just knocked him down and, and I, and I went, Oh my gosh, but I could see it and I could, I just knew. And then I remember between a sophomore and junior year, it happened. <laughs> I'm so glad he's not here. He would be so mad at me for talking like this. It happened. He, you know, the hair and the muscle mass came and it's, and I remember his junior year when the same defenders went to knock him off the ball. They couldn't move him and he dominated the league. He just dominated the league. And his senior year, he dominated the league. I watched it. I was on the sideline. And I don't know if you know Lou Engle, but he's another leader. And his son played. And we're both on the sidelines cheering him on. And we're very active fathers. And so we're just, we're just on the sideline. I remember the game when, uh, the ref was, it was a crucial game. The ref was hindering my son. From coming forth with all of his skill and who he is. And I remember I was giving the ref such a hard time. And I'm, I was this, I, I, I've served in many roles, associate director and the university president. This time I was the senior pastor. So I'm supposed to be the senior pastor, godly one setting the example. So I did, which was to be really active. And I'm yelling and, and trying to encourage the ref. It was a justice issue, people. So I'm encouraging the ref. It's about justice. And, and I'm giving the ref a hard time. And, and all of a sudden, I, I'll never forget it. I mean, it, my son was bleeding. He was getting beat up. And just they were just fouling him in order to, uh, to steal the game. And I'm yelling. I'm helping the ref uh, understand his role and the gifting that he has. And... To, and God gave him eyes and to use them and to, and a hand to, to you know, blow the whistle and, and uh, that type of thing. And so as I'm doing that, I'll never forget. He, he screamed at me. He goes, <laughs> he yelled, he goes, I'm the ref and you're not. I'll never forget it. And it just came out though, because I've searched my son. I've known him. I've searched him. It's, I've waited this whole, his whole life to, to unfold. And he goes, I'm the ref and you're not. It just came out. I couldn't help it before my religiousness pushed it down. It just came out. I go, that's the problem. You're the ref. You got it right. You're the ref and I'm not. <laughs> I mean, he was astute. That was the issue. And so, uh, but my point is, is that God has not only made you and not only knows you. He looks forward with great joy. The implications of your life as they unfold. And like a, a proud father, he's watching. He's noticing. He's observing 
and celebrating. It's not a stoic, distant father that goes, oh, I already know. I'm not so easily impressed. In fact, you need to pick up your game. Do a little better next time. I'm going to take time out and I know you. Bring your A game next time. No, he, he knows the seeds of virtue, of creativity, of wit, of charm, of goodness, kindness, compassion. He sees the seeds of wisdom. And when those seeds bud and begin to show, he's there celebrating. See, he not only knows you, he searches you. This is unbelievable. How can the God who knows everything take joy in watching anything? This is fabulous. That's where David starts. And then now David's going to go, well, how do you know me, God? If you know me and you search me, well, how do you know me? And he's going to give four ways that God knows him. And look, look what he does. He goes, look, look at this. Put your eyes on the verse right there. He goes, you know, my sitting down and my rising up. Now, what does this mean? You know, sitting down and rising up are some of the most random. (laughs) Weird choices you make in life. In fact, I can't think of a more small, random, unreasonable choice that I make every day. In fact, if you've ever prayed, you don't even know when to stand up and when to sit down. You don't even know when to worship. I never know when to stand up and sit down. In fact, my whole life, I'm like, I will come in this room during worship of the night. And I'll go, I need to sit down and prepare my heart. And I'll sit down and something will go, you need to stand up. I'll just stand up and start walking around. Then I'll walk around for a minute. It's like, you need to sit down, okay? And I'll sit down and then I'll come in and I'll stand up. And I'm just constantly doing this. I don't even know why I do it. It's perplexing to me. Have you ever come into a party or a room like a church? Watch people. They don't know whether to sit down or stand up. And then they'll sit down and they'll feel alone. So they'll stand up and just walk because then they don't feel alone if they're walking among people. They're still not talking to anybody, but they're walking. So you feel like it because you stood up and then you're just like. Anybody else do that? Especially in prayer. Prayer's tough. Prayer's hard. Prayer's hard to focus your mind. You, and you go, I need to sit down and just center in until you actually sit down and. Realize I can't center in at all. I'm horrible at this. And then you start to pray and you, your mind just goes everywhere. You're like, I, I got to stand up. You start praying in tongues just to kind of focus at all. And then you sit down and stand up. Sit. You don't know what you're doing, people. You don't even know why you're doing it. You just do it. That's David's point. He knows when I sit down and rise up. He knows the smallest, most idiosyncratic, the most random decisions we make. He knows them. He knows them all. And then he goes and goes beyond that. I know your thoughts from afar. I know your little choices. I know them all. And I know your thoughts from afar. Let me ask you a question. What makes you you? What makes you you? It's not a trick question. What makes you you? Your thoughts. People. Wake up on me here. Your thoughts. That's what makes you you. 
these things pop up behind your eyeballs and you don't know why they do. They pop up and it makes you you. The organized pattern of these things that pop up called thoughts. Now, atheists just think it's hardware. It's just, it's just synapses firing and thoughts coming up. And it's already determined. But God says, I know your thoughts from afar. Before you know your thoughts, I know your thoughts. Now, if the thoughts make you you, this means God knows you before you know you. Which means God precedes you before your thoughts pop up. God knows them. He knows before they pop up. One of the most random things in his life are my thoughts. Someone walks in the room, a thought pops up about my I'm like, most of my life is trying to figure out why those things pop up. So we what? We study Enneagram and we study what Myers-Briggs. We study all the personality profiles just to get a pattern of why my crazy thoughts pop up the way they do. And I still barely understand myself. And my I'm 50. I've searched myself out a long time. I don't get it. In fact, I'm trying to subdue most of my thoughts. That's called resisting temptation and everything else and bad thoughts and gossip and slander and, and negativity and I'm just always but I don't know where they come from. They're just But the Bible says that God knows them from afar. You know, a lot of, let me ask you a question. Are you shocked by your thoughts sometimes? I don't know why, but David telling us that God knows my thoughts from afar makes me feel a lot better. Why? Because just because I'm shocked about my thoughts, he's not. And he knows, he's going to tell us he knows all David's ways, which means he knows all his patterns, all the seasons of his life, everything that David does, his idiosyncrasy. So which means that Jesus could go to you and go, hey, um, I know you're scandalized by that thought that emerged in your mind. There's a whole lot more in there you don't know about. (laughs) And when put in the right scenario, there's some other ones that are going to pop up. So when Jesus loves you, knows you and loves you, and he knows all your thoughts and still feels this way about you, the point is, you might be scandalized by your thoughts. He knew them before they ever came up and he still died for you. He knows your thoughts from afar. God precedes you before you've ever become you. God's there. He knows you. Bless you. And then the last one is, he knows all the words on our tongue before they're formed. So he not only knows our small choices, he not only knows our thoughts, what makes us us, he not only knows our patterns and seasons of life, oh, it just hit me. You know what? You don't even get it. You're so young. You don't even know. When I say seasons of life, you're thinking about the last two years of something. I'm talking about seasons of life. Decades. You know, I had a come to Jesus moment the other day. I have to share this with you because it, I was I was totally shocked. I was in a room as the pastor 
with all 70-year-old-plus men, 70 to 90. I'm sitting there with them. They decided to enlighten me on a few things that I have to look forward to. Of course, I bound what they said and denied it and resisted it and rebuked the evil one and everything. But they, I, they, they literally, they sat around. They had all had prostate surgery and all the implications of the male prostate. And I hope this isn't scandalizing you. I'm an American. We're just, we're just forthright about everything. You know, you Koreans are more discreet. I'm, I'm just telling you from my American perspective. So they're just enlightening me on all the effects. I, I was traumatized. <laughs> I'm still traumatized. They went around. Oh, yeah, I got mine taken out three years ago. I still can't this, this, this. And yeah, I just wet myself. And I was like, what? I wear a diaper. What? What? There's adult diapers? This is horrible. The fact there's a market for it. You know, if it was only a few people, there wouldn't be a market for it. You'd have to use a towel or something and pin it. But the fact there's a market for it means this happens quite frequently. So they began to enlighten me. I was so shocked. You know what I did? I went right to my young pastoral team and enlightened my other young 20 and 30 year olds. And traumatize them too. It just needed to be done. My point, is, my point is, people, there's seasons. He knows all your seasons. <laughs> I, the guys are like, this is horrible. It's terrible. Don't look it up. Don't Google it. Just leave it alone. Just let it go. You got decades left. But anyway, my point is, it, 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 it seasons. Two years ain't a season. He knows them all. Why is this? Because each season has the new challenges. How many of you read that verse where it says David went out to war as an old man? And as he went out to war, Goliath's cousin comes out of the woodwork. He's got six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet. And he's bigger than Goliath. And you're like, where did, where are these Goliath cousins coming from? How many of these freaks of nature does David have to kill? And he's an old man and a new giant comes out. And they have to kill him too. And the point is, is every season, there's a new challenge. There's a new giant. That's the point. You never get past the new giant showing up. And so when, when David says he knows all my ways, all my seasons, and then he ends it with, and he knows all my responses to all those seasons. Your words are your responses to the stimuli. He goes, he not only knows my intricate choices. He not only knows my thoughts from afar. He not only knows all my seasons and he's there. And let me tell you something. One of the most beautiful things. In fact, I would say it is the most beautiful thing in all of human experience is when you meet a 90 year old who's madly in love with Jesus. Who's weathered the seasons and known God. There's nothing more beautiful than a 90 to 100 year old woman who just loves Jesus. You go meet with a widow who loves Jesus and watch or a widower. Nothing more beautiful. It's rare. It's glorious. But he knows all our responses. And then David, all of a sudden, David moves to the next verse, which is, well, if you know me this way, what do you do with the information? 
If you know my choices, you know my thoughts, you know my patterns, you know my responses, what do you do with the information? This is an important question for your generation. Why? Everybody wants your info. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants it. In fact, corporations will pay billions of dollars to get your information. Why? So they can move you. They can put together a voting block. They can change your opinion on a subject. They can get you to buy two more things than you would have. They will spend billions of dollars to find out about you, to track you, to know your location, to know what stores you enter, to know what kind of stores, what Google search, what this, why? So they can move you. You know what David says about God? He says, why do you, if you know all this, what do you do with the information? And the two descriptors in the next two verses are, he hedges me in before and behind. The verses there, if you look, if you look it up in Hebrew, it's the same word, phrase, as when an army besieges a city. It means he totally surrounds me. What do you do with the information? You lay siege to me. You secure me with it, and then you touch me with your hand. What does God do with all the information that he has about you? Two things. He hedges you in. And then he lays his hand on you. In fact, when you come upon a... Beloved, he is the most gentle. In fact, when you come upon a true prophetic person, they will tell you. Have you ever met with a true prophetic person? I'll never forget when I had a dream one night and I went down to the lobby and a prophetic individual came up and said he wanted to meet with me and then told me the dream I had. That freaked me out. But prophetic people that really walk with the Lord will tell you Jesus is the most covering of his people. How many of you know the Gospels tell us nothing about Jesus' family? Does that make you wonder? Jesus is not going to rat out Joseph and Mary and their mistakes. You think he's going to tell you about James and his sisters and what they did wrong? Are you kidding me? He is the most covering, loving person in all the universe. You don't get anything of what happened in his childhood. You're not going to get one mistake from him. You're not going to get it out of his mouth about how James did this, this, and this. In fact, even when James doesn't quite follow Jesus, Jesus shows up and appears to him in a resurrected body and so wins James over that he becomes camel knees from praying to his brother more than anybody else. He loves to cover us. He loves to cover us in love. He loves to hedge us in and lay his hand on us. He's the most kind person you can ever imagine. Do you know he had nicknames for his disciples? Did you know that? You, you think I'm kidding. It says he went up on the mountain all night to pray and then he came down and he called James and John's the sons of thunder. Now that, that's not a powerful statement about their prophetic nature or their preaching. That, that, they were hotheads. They, they wanted to kill people by the end of this thing. You know, they wanted to call down fire from heaven. They were the sons of thunder. He had nicknames for people. Can you imagine? Can you picture God in the flesh giving nicknames? This is amazing to me. <laughs> I'm like from a leadership perspective, this is unbelievable. 
And do you know they argued over who's the greatest in front of him for six months? Can you imagine your leader sitting down with your leader and it said they had a bitter dispute? You know what a bitter dispute is? Not just where I say why I deserve it. It's where I say why you don't deserve it. That's a bitter dispute. A dispute is, I think I deserve it because of my resume. A bitter dispute is, I deserve it because of my resume and you're an idiot. That's why I deserve it. Why would you get anything? (laughs) And they do it in front of him for six months. And then they're at the table, at the communion table, and they still start arguing. Now this isn't, this is serious. This is like arguing over cabinet positions for the government. Like, well, of course I deserve to be chief of staff. Well, why would you think you deserve to be chief of staff? You're a horrible communicator and you botch every assignment Jesus ever gave you. You can't organize your own life. You can't even turn off your alarm clock to get up in the morning. You're going to organize us. Come on. Uh Uh-uh. No. Leave organization to the Germans and the Koreans. You're an American. Just stop. Stop. You emote. Go over there and be the chief of emoting. You know, it was a bitter dispute. And you know what it is? He's so kind. He's so kind. The night he dies, the night he's going to be betrayed and the next day he dies, he washes their feet and covers them. And you know what he says to them? Because I'm pure, you're pure. What? Yeah. Because I'm pure, you're pure. What? You just told him you're going to die and they're still arguing over who's the greatest. It's okay. I'm going to fix that. It'll be all right. My point is, do you know it says in Psalm 45, gracious words are on his lips, therefore God has blessed him forever. If you met Jesus, why has God blessed him forever? Because gracious words are on his lips. If you met Jesus tonight, if he appeared to you, He would be the most gracious, kind man you've ever met. And even if he rebuked you, you would feel so loved. Have you met those kind of people who tell you the truth, but you feel so loved when they tell you the truth? There's only about three of them on the whole earth. But but when they talk to you about your issues, I'll never forget my brother-in-law is one of those guys. And he, he, he gently... He was talking to me, and I was so encouraged. I felt so loved. And then about ten minutes later, it hit me. Oh... I think he rebuked me. I'm pretty sure that was an issue. Oh, oh, this, oh, okay. But it felt so good. You know, gracious words are upon his lips. Therefore, God blessed him forever. My point is, is he surrounds you. He hedges you in. He covers you. And then he lays his hand on you. Now, now this is really important. Here's why that God knows you. Two reasons why God knows you that I'm going to I'm going to point out before we move on. And we have to because I only have an hour and 30 minutes. I thought I had three hours tonight to speak to you. I'm kidding. It was a joke. And so I but but two reasons. One is one is, is that it's amazing to me that God doesn't get bored with me. Because I get bored with everyone. We all get bored with one another. In fact, it it, it looks like this and we get disappointed with each other and therefore we isolate ourselves. Have you ever seen it? It comes like this. You come home and 
one of my boys go, you know, or your wife or whoever, your friend goes, oh, man, I met the coolest person today. Oh, yeah, Sarah, she's awesome. Amazing. I can't wait to hear her story. I mean, I heard a bit of her testimony. It was also, I, I really can't wait to, and, and I, I'm going to meet her for coffee. And then six months later, you, I, you know, I ask, hey, hey, how are you and Sarah doing? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there were some things under the surface. <laughs> I don't think it's going to work out like it did. I think I need a new, uh, a, a new accountability partner because some things that began to show, you know. And we use all kinds of religious language to cover up for the fact we get bored with people and we get disappointed with people. And the more we know them, the more bored and the more disappointed. Whereas God is the opposite. He who knows all searches you and hedges you in for himself. This should shock you. He's not like you. He's not like you. <laughs> you know, I, I'll never forget when the Lord spoke to one of his servants. He said, I think it was uh, Bob, Bob Mumford. He said, Bob, you and I are incompatible. And I don't change. You see, he, God doesn't gossip. We like to. God doesn't get bored with us. We get bored with everyone. <laughs> We don't delight in mercy. God does. In fact, we hate mercy. We like to receive it. We just hate to give it because that means somebody did us wrong. So we really don't like it unless it's I'm receiving it. But but so God's so unlike us. He delights in mercy. He likes to cover our sin. We like to talk about people's issues. In fact, it makes us feel more righteous when we talk about somebody more unrighteous. We just we're all that. God's so different. He knows us. And the second thing is, is that God does something special. You see, in the normal, in the normal relating of human beings, there's kind of three, there's kind of three steps to relating. One is you have to be vulnerable enough to be known. I've got to at some point risk giving you something of myself. And I then second, I've got to be known long enough to be accepted. And then third, I've got I've got to be open enough to be transformed by you. So I have to be vulnerable enough to be known. And then I have to be known long enough to be accepted. And then I've got to be open enough to be transformed in the process. But do you see, in fact, it's our terrifying, how do I say it? It's our fear of being rejected at the second step of being known long enough to be accepted that causes us to not be open and be vulnerable at the first step. So human beings are always in this dilemma. I don't want to be vulnerable to be known because when I'm known, I'm rejected. You, you see what I mean? And so we don't even get to the openness to be mutually transformed. But God skips the step. And these steps are important in, in human dynamics because it takes the free will. You have to be open You have to be vulnerable enough to be known. And then you have to be known long enough to be accepted. And I'll give you an example. When you date in human relating, that's what it's like. I have to be vulnerable enough to, 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 to be known. And then you've got to choose to be vulnerable enough. 
And then it leads to a little bit more vulnerability. Then Rachel, my wife, had to be vulnerable back. And then I had to see if I'm going to the next level. I'm vulnerable and vulnerable and vulnerable till it gets to the climax, which is what? One of us dare to do the unthinkable, which is say, I love you. And if it's answered with, I love you too. Awesome. But if it's answered with, um, you're such a good friend. That's where the pain comes. But you have to have that process to lead up to that point of risk. And it's all risk. It's just all raw. You know, and, and. And here's here's why you need to know this, guys, especially if you violate that process, it's to your own demise. If you literally go, God told me you're my wife. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I had a dream. You're the one. That is the surefire way for that girl to never have anything to do with you. Well, you need some more dreams because it ain't happening. You know, it ain't happening. No. Mm -mm. I'm glad told you when he tells me we'll talk, but probably not. Because you violated the free will of being vulnerable. And you didn't give the freedom and dignity of choice and of unveiling. And God always establishes that. Now, here's what's interesting about God. You, I have to be vulnerable enough in these next two days for you to know me. If I just preach at you and I'm not vulnerable at any point, you really don't know me. I just exposited the word, but you don't know me. But hopefully there's a vulnerability there and there's a mutual exchange for God's grace to come in our midst. But here's the, here's the thing about God. He doesn't wait for you to be vulnerable to him. He's the one unique and pervasive relationship you have. He doesn't wait for you to accept him before he knows you. He just goes right up in there. I know you and I love you no matter what. And so in that case, he's the one pervasive love. You can't shock him with something new. You can't shock him with a thought. You can't shock him with a season. You can't shock him with a failure. You can't shock him with a success. It won't make him like you more. You can't shock him. He knows it. And he's already said, yes, this is unthinkable. You don't have to be afraid at step number two because he's already said yes to you. Because he already knows step number one. He knows everything about you. This is glorious. I'm going to have to speed it up real quick because we've only touched six verses <laughs> and we're going to verse 24 people. But he knows you. The divine knowledge. We're so afraid if people will accept us. That's why Instagram is. My son gave me a coaching on Instagram and whether or not my, what is that called where all the pictures are on the same thing? You know, your post, is it post? Come on, people, you do Instagram in Korea. Don't act like you're all religious and you don't do. Do you do Instagram here or is it mostly Facebook? He gave me a whole, a whole hour teaching 
on why I have to put my pictures when I post and think about how my home page looks, <laughs> design and feel. I'm like, really? Y'all going to judge the layout of my home page? No matter what I said. And, and I love it. She goes, it's important. <laughs> so he makes me think about colors or black and white pictures and how I mingle them in and how many of them are with people or how many of them nature shots or how many of them reflections or videos. Versus, uh, I was like, ah! I go, there are too many things to worry about. I go, just to be accepted. Uh-uh. But God knows you and not only accepts you, he hedges you in and then lays his hand on you. But then David, he opens another door. He's done with that room now. He goes, okay, you know me. Can I get away from you? Okay, you know me. I'll, I'll hand it to you. You know me. We'll, we'll I concede you know me. And you have good intentions. But can I get away from you? Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? Now, you got to know something. There's two different. There's difference between going and fleeing. Going is when you're kind of walking out life and you just get a little bit off track. You're not even trying. You just lose your way. Most of you in this room, if there's going to be a temptation, it'll be on going. But then there's fleeing. He goes, what if I just try to get away? What if I just run from you really hard? <laughs> can I go or what if I flee? But can I get away? That's the question now. Okay, I concede. You know me. Can I get away from you? Can I lose you in my rearview mirror? Can I? And the answer is going to be, okay, what if I go up to heaven? You're there. That's a given, right? If I go up to heaven, you're there, right? He's going to give us these two planes. One is vertical and the other is going to be horizontal. He goes, what if I go up to heaven? You're there. But now it's the next question. What if I make my bed in the depths of hell? You know what he says? Behold, that's an emphasis. Behold, you are there. Which in, which in the Hebrew, the, the correct translation from Hebrew should be this. Uh, if I go up to heaven, you're there. And if I make my bed in the depths of hell, you're especially there. Think about that. If I go up, you're there. And if I go to the depths of hell, you're there. Now, I remember my, my oldest son. He was in this time where uh, many of his friends were becoming atheists. And he said, Dad, if I'm called to witness to secular humanists and atheists, I have to take their claims seriously. And I just want to let you know I'm going on a journey to understand their arguments and I'm really going to question the tenets of our faith. If I'm going to ask atheists to convert, if I'm going to ask Muslims to convert, if I'm going to ask Buddhists and I'm going to engage them as an apologist, I have to be sincere enough to question my own tenets of my faith. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, no. <laughs> just stay saved. <laughs> I just want you saved. I want to be with you forever. <laughs> I really don't care about your academic integrity. I just want you to be safe. But he had to go through this process. And um, he called me up. I remember his mom and I began interceding. Interceding. 
did you drop that cup? Was that, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. And so, <laughs> she threw it at me, people. Do you see that? And so, but anyway, he, we began to intercede for him and we knew something was on the line. And he called us up weeping about two hours later. He was in our, we were away. He was in our, in our room, in our house. And it looks out these windows over the woods. And he had made a decision that he was going to walk away from the faith. Now, me as a, an evangelist and preacher of the gospel, he understands the implications of that. All his cousins are saved, all his aunts and uncles. His grandfather was a pastor for 40 years. Everybody in the family is believers. It's revival when we have a family reunion. It's on fire, and he's going to be the one atheist. What is that going to mean for his wife, his grandchildren? And though he's going to be an atheist, we're still closest of friends. How are we going? And so he knows the implications for about six months. He wrestled through the implications of, well, if I don't believe that God exists anyway, maybe I can just pretend to be a Christian. At least that way I'll be close to my family. And he went through all those dynamics for six months. And then that night he decided I'm walking away from God. And so he said, Lord, I'm forsaking the faith. And the moment he said it, he heard a voice say, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? And all of a sudden it hit him. He walked away from God. But in the moment he walked away from God, Christ was there. In his God forsakenness. Do you know what that means? That Jesus has experienced what it means to be apart from the father, to feel that way. And suddenly he said, when I turned my back on God. Christ was there. And suddenly he realized there's nowhere I can go that Christ has not been. <laughs> and he said, he called me. I mean, he got born again, again. Now picture this. No, I mean it. Within minutes of walking away from God and saying, I'm done with you. You're not real. Christ says, I've been there. I know what it's like when you're in the darkness and you don't know where God's at. He said in that moment, he said, Dad, I can't get away from Christ. And God, even in the depths of hell. He's there and got born again, again. And now he's the most ardent evangelist for the faith. Beloved. If you go up to the heavens, he's there. If you go make your bed in the depths of hell, he's there. Then he goes horizontal. He goes, even if I go to the, where the wings of the morning and, and go to the far end of the sea, which is east and west, which is, means every circumstance, even there your hand shall hold me and guide me. But then he goes, okay, if I go up to heavens, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. If I go to the east is to the west and every major circumstance, you're there. What if my own emotions turn on me? Have you ever had that? He says, what if the, what if it becomes darkness all around me? What if my emotions turn on me? Have you ever had hopelessness, hopelessness sit on your head? Depression sit on you? What, what if my mind and my own emotions turn against me? What, what if the shadow surrounds me? What, what if I can't find you? What, what if the darkness surrounds me? That's what David's saying. 
I know if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're down there. I know if I go from this side, east to west, every circumstance, you're in it. But what if my own mind turns against me? What if the shadow covers me? What if I can't find my way? What if my emotions accuse me and you and everyone else? What if I'm dark? What if depression sets in? What if the shadow covers me? And the night surrounds me. What if I turn on me? David says, even then, the night shall become like light around me. For what is the night is as light to you. What do you do when your own mind and your own emotions can't keep you from him? That in the darkness, he's there. And this is what you love about God. He's there. David says, I can't get away from you. I go up there. I go down there. I go over there. I go over there. And even if I turn against me, you're there. (laughs) He goes. And then he asks another. He opens a door. And he asks another question. Okay, I can't get away from you. But what if there's something Wrong with me. He goes, I concede, you know us all. I concede, we can't get away from you. But what if there's just something broke with me? What if everybody else has the, what if everybody else can experience you? What if it's just me? Has the, has the devil ever lied to you like that? Has he? Have you ever had the feeling of, you know, uh, Everybody else can experience God. Has he ever you ever heard that? What if there's something wrong with me at a chromosomal level? What if genetically I'm off? What if I'm the one guy in the midst of the fall that just can't connect with you, God? I mean, John can connect. And David can connect. Or at least he looks like he's connecting when he's singing. But, you know, I sing it and I make the face, but I'm not. I didn't feel anything. Susie told us to worship because she experiences God. And I think it's just me. Have you ever have you ever said that? I, I think, am I the only person? People, help me out here. I'm feeling. I'm, I'm being vulnerable. I, I think it's just me. Everybody else uses the spiritual language. Everybody else is really going for God. But I, what if it's me? What if when I close the door at night and I'm all alone, I don't really feel him. I don't really know he knows me. I don't believe I can't get away from him. What if it's just the fault? What if it's me? What What if it's me? And the Lord speaks. Look what the Lord says to David. It's beautiful. Look at it. Verse 13. You form my inward parts. Look at that. David, David's going to go, you know what? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. David says, no, God's even here at a genetic level. He goes, I'm formed. I'm covered. I'm fearfully made. I'm wonderfully made. 
I am his marvelous work. I was not hidden from him. I was skillfully wrought. And his eyes saw my substance. And all my days were fashioned by him. When as yet there were none. And all of a sudden David is undone. Look what he says next. Look what he says. How precious are your thoughts to me. What what does your version say? There's two different ways you can read this. One is how awesome are your thoughts to me. Or the other one is it can be translated. And it'll probably have a notation in your Bible. If it's a good good translation. It'll say your thoughts concerning me. Oh my gosh. You know me. You have the divine knowledge and you use that knowledge to secure me. I can't get away from you. (laughs) And I have the divine design. Do you know what that means that you're made in his image? It means that you have the unique capacity to know him. David goes, I'm wonderfully made, fearfully made. And besides that, Your thoughts concerning me are more than the sand of the seashore. Now he's undone. You have this many thoughts about me? And then look what he has. He has one more question. Okay. If you know me. And I can't get away from you. Bless you. You know me and I can't get away from you. And I'm not the exception to the rule because you made me. And you have all these wonderful thoughts about me. What about death? You're going to let me discover this grand truth and then let me die. You're going to let me know that you know me. You're going to let me know that you secure me and love me. You're going to let me know that you'll never leave me. You're going to let me know that I'm this wondrous to you and you have all these thoughts and you're going to let me die. Are you kidding me? That's why the Bible says death is the last great enemy. First Corinthians 15. It's the great enemy. It's the last enemy. It's the last impediment to God and you knowing each other. David goes, what about death, God? What about death? What about death? Why would you steal my heart and love and then leave me in the grave? Look what David says. When I awake, I'm still with you. Now, beloved, he's not talking about waking up from sleep. Sleep is just the picture of what? Death. That's why every normal kid hates death. I mean, hates sleep. (laughs) Hates sleep. Sleep is so bizarre to me. Sleep is the picture of death. Have you ever thought about it? Close your eyes. Close your eyes and you disappear. I hate it. You close your eyes, you disappear. And then you open your eyes and you're back again. And you don't know where you went. And you have to check the clock to see how much time it was. 
you just disappear. It's the daily reminder you're going to die. You do know that sleep is. I'm not making this up. Even from a theological, biblical perspective, Jesus uses sleep as death. Hey, Lazarus is asleep. Let's go wake him up. And the disciples go, he's sick. He needs to sleep. He's dead. <laughs> like a metaphor. Sleep, metaphor, throughout the Bible, consistently, you guys get it. Sleep, death, close your eyes, you disappear. I mean, think about that. You just disappear. If you don't dream, you disappear. And we're messed up because we want to disappear longer. <laughs> we're not kids anymore. We're like, I hope I disappear for longer. But you just go. You dissolve. You just, you're gone. And the Lord speaks to David. I mean, I don't know about you, but you probably didn't have this. I, I, I sleep terrified me. My parents taught me this prayer as a kid to pray every night. They would pray this with me. Horrible prayer. You probably don't have it. It's probably moved on through the sands of time. But my parents taught me this prayer. It's now I lay me down to sleep. Oh, my goodness. Your parents tortured you, too. <laughs> now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. I pray the Lord my soul to take. I remember I'm like a six-year-old kid going, hey, if there's a possibility I'm dying tonight, I don't think we should be sleeping. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? If, there's, if my mom and dad think there's a possibility I'm dying, we, we, probably, we probably should stay up. <laughs> I remember as a kid going, wait a minute. If I should die before I wake, I pray. The Lord. And I'd get saved every night. I'm like, I could die tonight. And I disappear. I don't even understand this weird thing called sleep. They make me do it every day. And I disappear. But David goes, guess what? God speaks to him. I don't just know you. I don't just secure you in my love. I don't just preserve you and never go. I don't just think wondrous thoughts about you. Guess what? Forever. You're mine. Forever. You're never going to die, David. You're going to wake up. Now, this is fabulous. When David realizes he is not just divine knowledge, divine security, divine love, divine uh, 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 thoughts, divine design. He goes, if this is the case, we're going to be together forever. And you're this amazing. Then have it all. Remove every enemy on the outside. Remove every enemy on the inside. If you're like this. Have it all. You see when. When the understanding of who God really is. Touches your heart. That's when you say. Have it all. 
at all. If you're like this, have it all. Now here's the good news tonight for you. David only saw little glimpses. You got Jesus. You got him. David only saw visions of him to come. You got him. You don't have to guess what God is like. You don't have to wonder how God feels about you. You tried to get away and guess what? God showed up. <laughs> in the flesh and said, uh-uh, you're mine. <laughs> I've been to heaven. I'll go to hell and back for you. I'll take on your sin. I'll live your life and die your death and bear your wrath for your sin. Why? So we can know and be known. You see, when Jesus took on flesh, do you know this today? Jesus doesn't know you because he wrote the manual called the humanity manual. You ever had anything break down and you got to look at the owner's manual? He didn't just write the owner's manual for you. He went one step further. He became you and lived every season. He knows everything about you from the inside out. He's intimately acquainted with your frame and knows everything. He's not scandalized. And at the height of love, he goes, I want you. And so came the moment that he said, with all that I have and all that I am, I honor you. And made the way. Love it. Here's the question. If David saw glimpses, you got Christ. <laughs> you got Jesus. Oh my gosh. You got him. You don't have to perform. You can rest in the divine knowledge that he doesn't just know you from the owner's manual. He knows you not only as your king, he's your brother. Do you know what's going to happen on that day when you see him? You're not going to the judgment seat of God and there's going to be this ball of energy hovering over you know, the... Do you know on that day, you're not going to approach this energy force like the force. The force. Close your eyes, Luke. Let go. No, no. Open your eyes. Because he's there. Do you know one day you're going to walk up and there's going to be a man with a with tender eyes and a warm smile looking at you. It's going to blow your mind one day when God touches you. When God embraces you. When God speaks to you with wit and charm and humor and love. And blows your mind and tells you inside jokes that he saw about your because he watched you unfold before him. He's a person, people. That's the point. David got in touch with God's a person. 
And he went, okay, then you have it all. Have you got in touch with that? You know what the Bible says? They are going to be Jesus's words when he sees you on that day to all who sincerely love him. How good and well done, my what? Faithful servant. Enter into the what? My father has prepared for you. I'm not making this up. This is a scripture. Enter into the what my father has prepared for you. The joy. What does Jesus call your future with him for eternity? The joy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Eye has not seen nor ear has heard or entered into the heart of man what the Father has prepared for those who what? Love him. I can't wait on that day when he says that to me, and he will. I think, I think, I don't know what he's going to do to you. I can't wait till he goes, enter into the joy and I walk past him. I, I know what he's going to do to me. He's going to smack, he's going to pop me right on the bottom. Because <laughs> I played sports. Do y'all do that in sports here? Do y'all do that in Korea or is that just a American thing? When we play sports, like, in a, you know, if you play rugby, a good scrum. A good scrum, and you, you do well, and you, you know you get it, and, and it, <laughs> you score the touchdown, or you, you know, as the Nationals won the World Series, it, you hit the home run, and you pass through, and you run past, and what are they all doing? Popping you right on the bottom. Good job. My point is this: he he knows my love language. He he knows what what is he going to do with you? You haven't even thought about it. What is he going to do? How is he going to interact? The one who knows everything about you. Do you have any idea how personal he is towards you? How intricate, how personal? Each one of you, he will say inside things that blow your mind. Some of you, it will reconcile years of questions trial. Others of you, it will be simple, glad tidings that no one knew about. He's a person. I could tell you more, but I think that's enough for tonight. Here's why I want to say this, because if you're going to go on a retreat with Jesus, you need to let everything go of performance. And just surrender to the divine knowledge, the divine security, the divine love, the divine pursuit, the divine design, and the divine purpose. How apropos at the very end of this thing, two little boys, Ethan and Ezra, run in the back door like they own the whole joint. <laughs> Why? Because their mom and dad's in there and they're allowed. I felt like the Lord for this session tonight wanted you to know that when you wanted you to enjoy him for who he is and thus start to enjoy yourself as you enjoy him and then enjoy one another as you enjoy him and yourself. And tonight when you go to bed that you would just be at peace. Be at peace. Well, I've been depressed. Well, the darkness will become light around you.
It's okay. You're in good company. There's others here that their emotions have turned on them. Their own thoughts have turned on them. Well, I don't even know if I don't even know if I believe this stuff. Well, it's okay. You're in good company. Christ is there too. He's there. Well, I, I, you know what? I just, you know, I, just, it's okay. Well, you don't know what I've done the last two years. No, it's, he does. He knows you. He's searching you. He knows what's the budding virtues that are going to come forth. He's got you. He's there. Because if you do that, you just might do the one thing needed. Talk to him. And not perform for him. You might just let it go and go, I am what I am. And I need you. Come to me. And in that place, you might find him more. 